It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It's a pleasure to have you listening to Moment of Truth each and every day here on Element FM, as well as other radio stations that also now carry Moment of Truth. Or you might be listening on your favorite podcast platform. That's a great way to listen, as well as on our Element FM SoundCloud. It's also a pleasure to welcome to the show two guests uh, joining me on the show today are James Cullingham, as well as uh, a journalist from Mexico who's relocated to Canada. His name is Luis Nehera, and uh, they're here to talk to about a new film, a documentary film that James is putting together. It's going to be coming out later this year. It's called The Cost of Freedom, Refugee Journalists in Canada. James has been on the show before. He is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, historian, and journalist with Tamarack Productions, and it's based in Peterborough. So it's a pleasure to welcome James back, but it's also a pleasure to welcome Lewis to the show. Gentlemen, Welcome. Hi, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to have you both here. James, it's been a while since we spoke. I can't remember the last time we were actually uh, on the show together. Do you remember? Uh, About a week after Donald Trump was defeated, although he didn't know it. Or he didn't recognize it <laughs> at that right. time. That's right. That's right. Thanks for reminding me. Absolutely. So now you've moved on to this Cost of Freedom, Refugee Journalist in Canada, which is a documentary on three journalists, all um, have relocated to Canada and are either Canadian citizens now or are working towards that end. James, tell me about where the idea came from. I believe you started looking into this in around 2017. How did, the, how did it all come about? I was on the board of the Canadian Association of Journalists at that time, and I was um, a full-time journalism professor at Seneca College in Toronto. And um, I suggested to my colleagues that we put together a panel for the upcoming annual uh, conference of the CAJ. Mm. It was in Ottawa uh, that spring. And... um, People told me about Luis. We chatted. I was very, very impressed and moved by his story and his courage. I also met a woman named Arzu Yildiz, who will be in the film as well. Arzu, at that point, had very recently arrived from Turkey under duress. Mm. And um, so the beginning uh, of my inquiry was with the CHA conference, organizing that meeting Luis, meeting Arzu, and then within a year to 18 months after that, along with a third principal character, Abdurrahman Matar, who is from Syria, um, we all agreed that, um, and they've been extremely patient and courteous and committed to the project because it takes a while to get a documentary together in mm. Canada. Mm-hmm. And um, we're, we're much closer today than we were in 2019. And I'm very happy to be working with Luis and Arzu and Abdurrahman. Hmm. Now, I understand that just before the lockdown happened, uh, going back about a year now, um, that you had, you had a presentation with these journalists that took place at Trent University. Yes, um, Peter Zosky College at uh, Trent hosted um, the three journalists. Um, we showed a short clip, kind of development clip from the film, primarily student audience and uh, people um, asked lots of questions and um, it was actually the biggest snowstorm of 2020 but 
Luis and his colleagues uh, made it to uh, Trent. And Luis actually um, engaged with um, Trent students um, in other ways over the next 24 hours. So it was uh, it was a real uh, uh, boost to the production um, and we filmed it. So it's it, people will be able to see part of it in the film. Mm. Um, and uh, it was um, uh, well, Luis can tell you what he thought of it. But I think it was a very, very interesting moment um, for all of us. Mm. Uh, Luis, so welcome to the show as well. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Luis, tell us something about yourself, something about your story. When did you when did you, did you relocate to Canada? Uh, hi, thank you again for, for the invitation. Mm. Uh, I I came to Canada in to September 2008. Uh, I arrived to, with my family to Vancouver first, mm. uh, and then we lived there in the suburbs for three years. Mm-hmm. Then we relocated to Toronto, and uh, we have been here since then. Uh, before I before coming to Canada, uh, I was uh, a senior correspondent at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, for uh, Grupo Reforma, which is one of the most influential newspapers uh, in Mexico. And uh, basically, my uh, a lot of my reporting was on uh, transnational organized crime for several reasons. Uh, I was uh, located in a, in a city that uh, between 2008 and 2010 was considered the most dangerous city in the world. Mm. Uh, And um, also because of that, uh, before that I I supported or or my colleagues from the same uh, newspaper in different locations at the border, like Reynosa, uh, Nuevo Laredo, Tijuana, facing with was the beginning of the war on drugs so i was very engaged so or, or very in, yeah engaged in mm-hmm. in reporting these things and unfortunately that uh had uh, repercussions uh, against me and my family and uh, at some point we uh, assessed uh, the threats and we decided to to flee mm. You were saying the city you were living in was the most dangerous or labeled the most dangerous in the world. How how difficult was it for you to for you to to share these stories on organized crime? And and what about the other journalists that remain there? How do you think they are dealing with the situation in terms of trying to report on these things? Well, to my advantage, when I was there, uh, I worked for a, a national newspaper, mm. so and, and a big one. Is mm. uh, as I told you before, is mm. well one of the most probably one of the three most influential newspapers in Mexico. So you have a lot of exposure, so to speak. So mm. that that's good in the sense that uh, you have. Uh, I mean, you are not uh, people who want to to harm you they're going to think twice because again mm. this is a national uh, mm. media mm. so outlet so it's going to be some repercussions um and for my the, 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 it was hard but but i mean aside of that this it was hard it, sure. it, it it's really hard to live and work in this kind of environments because for instance if you are in canada and you go to i don't know mozambique or whatever place in the world which is or or anywhere who has a, a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go there, you report for maybe two weeks, three weeks, and then you come back. Mm. But 
you live there. So you have to report on those things and then you have to go back. For instance, just to give an example, uh, one day uh, my wife was uh, picking up our uh, daughter from the it was like a nursery and uh, a daycare. And uh, just outside of the, of the daycare, there's a shooting. And she called me and says, hey, there's guys shooting outside this place. What do I do? I'll just go inside and, and, and take over. Mm. And then uh, I, I drove um, to, not to help her because how can I help? I mean, I, right. I, don't, I don't carry weapons. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't driving an armored car. So basically it's just to, to report on that. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's really hard going to a place that, you know, okay, my wife is on the other side of the shooting. My daughter is there and, uh, and you're there. And, and after that, you have to go home and, and, uh, and continue your, your life, right? Mm. Other, other example that I can uh, give you quickly is uh, many times we decided to, okay, let's go for, you know, lunch, for instance. And then we go, we went for uh certain restaurants and as soon as I drove into the parking lot I saw certain cars and people and this and this and that and said you know what this is not a safe place mm. we have to leave and oh well my wife, my wife of course oh come on this is the, the, the food is delicious here yeah but you know I don't feel comfortable with this and this and this car mm. and these people and so on so on so, so those kind of things uh, at some point are piling up and, and create a lot of stress. And this relates with your, with your second question about mm. the, my colleagues. Well, this is an enormous uh, emotional toll uh, that journalists are paying, not uh, only in Mexico. This is something that we, and I, I, I pick him up, talk about myself, um, we, ha we are still caring with us. Uh, it's really hard for when you, in my case, 12 uh, fellow colleagues uh, have been murdered. Mm. People that I work with, that I met, 12. Mm. And they were murdered because of their, because of their work as journalists. Mm. So, and, and, and unfortunately, another uh, colleague uh, and friend, he took his own life Gee. because of the stress that this situation um, mm. how how big the impact on him was so this can give you an idea how bad the situation is right well thanks for sharing that James when you when you met these these three journalists these three people and you heard their stories obviously you you found them compelling enough that it was it was adding into the story that you wanted to build you say that this is you want to raise the awareness or the consciousness on the on the, the threat of, of of global the global threat to journalism. Well, I think the three characters, one from Mexico, Luis, mm -hmm. Arzu from Turkey, Abdurrahman from Syria. Those are three of the countries where, unfortunately, uh, journalists um, are most under threat. Um, Turkey, there are hundreds, perhaps over a thousand journalists in prison. Um, and uh, we know how deadly the situation has been in Syria. And Luis has described the situation in uh, Mexico. We could be talking about the Philippines. We could be talking about China. We could be talking about Russia. Um, there are other candidates. There is a global assault on free speech. And uh, journalists are the targets. 
And this situation, sadly, has been getting worse. And whether it's the Committee to Protect Journalists or um, Canadian Association of Journalists or Canadian Journalists for Free Expression or Reporters Without Borders, you know, um, any number of organizations, both in Canada and around the world, are documenting um, this um, tragic situation. So we would like to humanize the story and bring it back home to Canadians um, and to help the audience understand um, that, you know, we take a lot of things for granted, those of us who are, you know, mainstream uh, middle-class Canadians have a great deal of comfort and security that is not common around the world. And in terms of free speech, David, you and I as working journalists in this country, we face challenges and certainly indigenous journalists in Canada face greater challenges than I have. But generally speaking, um, we know we're going to get home at night. We're not in fear of our lives, but uh, that's not the case for too many journalists um, in the world, or they run the fear of arbitrary um, detention mm. without uh, access to anything that we would consider to be a fair um, legal system. Mm. So um, hopefully people will watch the film they will uh, increase their awareness of these issues and also recognize that in the three main characters, you know, it's a huge challenge for any refugee to, to pick up her life and come to uh, Canada. Um, and those of us who are here and those of us in the journalism industry, I would hope, would uh, be welcoming and uh, helpful. So if the film stirs that conversation um i will have done um you know i will have completed the mission that we we set out to achieve mm -hmm. now i'm just wondering you know of late and i don't want to take away from the story but here in canada for the most part it's not the same situation i just want to bring something to light that happened within the last six months or so and you may be james familiar with this is that a journalist that was reporting on land back in in caledonia um was arrested or or charged with by the police um and that that situation has come to light it's certainly not by any means the same but it does it fall into the same category of, of journalism being threatened well, I, I, I think it does in the sense that um, free speech is under threat. And um, whether it's the Wet'suwet'en territory in uh, British Columbia, your listeners might be familiar with what happened to Justin Brake in mm -hmm. Labrador mm -hmm. at Muskrat Dam, right. um, Muskrat Falls Dam situation. Yep. And then you mentioned the Caledonia situation. Also, um, journalists in Montreal um faced legal hassles over what many of us in the industry would consider to be uh routine standards of of, of um maintaining uh privacy about um sources in terms of uh um investigations into uh corruption organized crime and police in in uh in Montreal and Quebec so that absolutely is part of the story, but it's not, um, I've been, I don't, hopefully, 
Canadians are looking at those situations and wondering, what does that say about our leaders' commitment and our system's mm. commitment to free speech and the activity of journalists? Mm. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to have with me here on the show today, James Cullingham. He's a guest that's been on the show before, and he is a director and producer of documentary films. And we are here talking with him as well as uh, guest uh, journalist Luis Nahara, and he is one of the people that are going to be featured in uh, James's upcoming film, The Cost of Freedom, Refugee Journalism, Journalists in Canada. And that's set to be released later this year, and so it is in production. However, I understand also that, of course, like anything, COVID-19 has certainly had an effect on all manner of uh, things in business, and it slowed down production a little bit, but it is something that is being produced uh, within the greater Toronto area. Peterborough is the location of James and um, I'm not sure if Louis, well I think Louise is in the Toronto area but James I also understand that you you met up with some other filmmakers that are also uh, located in Peterborough for this and you, you sort of got to working together and, and now you've got this working relationship that is moving this film forward. Yeah it's one of the uh, joys of having moved back to Peterborough, but I hadn't lived here since I was a student uh, back at Trent University in a, in a previous millennium. Um, I have family here. I have ties to Trent University. I have ties to the kind of canoe wilderness community that has used Peterborough as a base and outposts and tomogamy and other such places. So I, I, I've, in some respects, I never went away, but I hadn't lived here for um for uh, over 30 years mm. and came back and I met a couple of uh, filmmakers who are much younger than I am, uh, Rob Biscardis and Pavel Dulet, um, and also recent graduates from both uh, Trent University and Peterborough High School who are um, young emerging filmmakers, Daniela Leal and uh, Shahed Kaito. And, um, Shahed's family are refugees from Syria. So um, we have constructed a, a team based here to, uh, to work on the film primarily. And uh, Luis and his colleagues are all at the moment in the greater Toronto area. But it's, um, it's very interesting, you know, someone based in Toronto making films for 30 years to be in a smaller, a much smaller centre. Peterborough's population is less than 100,000, but um, it's very rich culturally. And uh, one of the things that transpired in, in my absence was there is um, uh, there was always tremendous music scene, lots of theater going on. But now there are a number of filmmakers based in the area. And it's, it's great for me to establish a relationship with these these gentlemen and uh, these young women. It's it's it's. Uh, it's going to be a different uh, storytelling adventure for me. Sure. Luis, when you were uh, in the in, in the session with the other journalists at Trent University, were you surprised by hearing their stories, one? And two, what did you find similar in your stories? 
Well, yeah, well, we, we met before uh, when we were in the planning stages of the, mm. the documentary. Um, well, um, surprised, I won't say surprised. I, uh, I felt sad mm. because they, I mean, based on my own situation, you never desired that other people has to mm. go through the same or mm. similar situations mm -hmm. that you went through. And when you listen to their stories and you say, oh, yeah, I know. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're talking about. And it's it's mostly sadness because uh, uh, they shouldn't be doing and they shouldn't be living in the right. way that they are yeah. living, that all of us are living because we have to make choices at some point right. because of our jobs. And the similarities, well, there's a lot of similarities based uh but I guess the most there's I would say there's three similarities that uh, stood for me one is the passion that all of us have mm -hmm. for, for our job mm -hmm. as journalists mm -hmm. uh, that's where we're here because probably if we decided not to be passionate as we were we'll we probably we will be in another place mm. but also the the courage to wake up every morning here and try to survive mm. here mm. and i'm not telling you surviving in a sense that we were on threat or something mm -hmm. surviving means the, the continuing to basically to to moving forward despite all the things that you have to face every single day from I'm speaking about language barriers mm -hmm. work disadvantages mm -hmm. uh, systematic racism mm. uh, and, 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 and on and on and on and the third one is the the I, I won't say pleasure, but the 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 need that we have to tell the world that the world needs to take care of the journalists, mm. because you mentioned Canada before, and well, as someone who has went through worst scenarios that in Canada, I can tell you that probably this could be the beginning of something worse. Because when you think, if you see the behavior, for instance, from the from law enforcement agencies in Canada, that they are now somehow in a very subtle way attacking journalists by asking to release their sources, to mm. uh, 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 confiscating their cameras, mm. and, and so on, so on. So when you have... Um, politicians that they don't care about what, uh, what the, the, what's happening to journalists and furthermore when you have a society that uh, yesterday I think there was a new survey that says that people don't believe in traditional media now mm. in Canada mm. or they distrust traditional media so that means that there's something wrong here because when society is starting to 
uh, moving back or, 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 or not protecting their journalists, well, that, that's something that is, is going to be worst if things don't, doesn't change soon. Mm -hmm. That perhaps is an advantage that you and the other people that you are associated with in this documentary have as an advantage to see something that we uh, here in Canada aren't, don't see because of the situations that you have come out of. You also mentioned sadness, and I would like to come back to that because it made me think of a couple of things, um, you know, both professionally and, and personally, I guess. You have that sadness of having had to leave your home, uh, your home country, uh, having uprooted your family, having, having left a, a, you know, a, a job, a security to some degree. And there's that sadness. And I'm sure that it's difficult on your family. You just have those daily things that you were talking about, waking up and, and your family has to adjust to this new situation. That is not easy either, especially when you feel it is something that you're not necessarily doing by a, a, a choice that you wanted to make. It's a choice you feel you had to make it for the betterment of yourself and your family. So I'm sure that adds some sadness. And, and I guess, is there, is there a sense of loss for you as well? Of course. Yeah, you lost everything. I mean, uh, just imagine one day, just picture this. Today, you are here talking to us at your home. You have a job, you have everything. And tomorrow, you are on a plane landing in a new country that you barely speak the language. You have no idea where they are. Uh, you have no idea what's next. And you have like $5,000 in your pocket. And mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. So just picture that. And yeah. that's our reality. Yeah. Uh, we had, uh, we lost a house. We lost, my, my wife was a very successful uh, human resources uh, supervisor in a big international company. Mm. And she lost her job. Mm. Uh, now she's working in a call center. Uh, right. And uh, my, 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 my kids, they lost the, 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 the grandparent mm. uh, they lost family they lost contact with uh, the family mm. um, it, it's it's I mean you name it you lost we basically we lost everything yeah. uh, identity because when sure. you are here uh, at some point you question who, well who am I I mean I, I am a number an immigration number I am uh, another one of the thousands of, of uh, immigrants here uh and you don't know mm. basically that that that's a i mean i've been here for 12 years now and and i'm still struggling to find my personality and mm. and and the the irony here is that i already had two master degrees here in canada mm. i have one master from u of t i have one master for york university mm. and i haven't been able to resettle properly here mm. because i don't know mm. probably you can help me to find that answer. I, I haven't. I, I don't have that answer. Mm. How how is it possible that I haven't been able to resettle properly and mm. to basically to resettle here and to at least repay or uh, somehow um, re uh, replace? No, but something uh, to 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 compensate my family for mm. everything that they. Mm have lost so far because mm. of my choice. Right. And that's a very, very heavy burden that you have to carry on. Sure. Because everything happened because of my choice mm. or my choices yeah. as a journalist. Right. Well, 
James and Luis, uh, it certainly has been a pleasure to have you on the show. I, I want to thank you, Luis, for sharing the things that you did. James, I want to thank you for bringing this story forward. Now, The Cost of Freedom, Refugee Journalists in Canada, is set to be released later this fall. Now, you are looking for people to get involved, James. You want to tell us a little bit about that? You're looking for support, I believe, as well. Please, if anybody can support us in any way whatsoever, don't hesitate to contact uh, me through Tamarack Productions, T-A-M-A-R-A-C-K. And um, I'm sure Luis wouldn't mind me saying Luis is uh, active in social media. And for those of you who speak um, Spanish, he does a wonderful podcast. They're the voices of James Cunningham and uh, also Luis Nahara, and he, they were on the show talking about the cost of freedom, refugee journalists in Canada, and that is a documentary slated to come out later this year. You can find out more by going to Tamarack Productions, as you heard James mention there. Uh, they are looking for help to try and support the production of this film. That's this part of the show. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more right here. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you can also listen on one of your favorite podcast platforms if that suits you. You can also listen on our SoundCloud at Element FM. And uh, don't forget, you can also listen there and like us. We would appreciate that. We'd also like to welcome listeners on other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth. We welcome you to the show as well. And I also want to welcome my guest to the show, Thomas Moray. He is a political economist working on finance for development. Thomas joins us to talk about an article he co-authored in the conversation entitled COVID-19 Illustrates Why. Why Canada needs more and better public banks. So I would like to welcome Thomas to the show, but a little bit more about him. He's a political economist working on finance for development. He has fostered a global research and advocacy program on public banks, financing green and just transitions with a particular focus on sustainable development and essential public services. So Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure. And you were just mentioning, you know, we, we had to set up a, a, a very special time zone for you because you're located in Europe. I believe you may be, in fact, located in, in France at the moment. Is that where you are? Yeah, that's true. I live uh, in the south of France right now, uh, near Marseille. Uh, I feel so sorry for you having to live in Marseille. Yeah, me too. Uh, the, the grass is up and the flowers are starting to bloom already. Oh, very nice. But you also you said you live there, but you work in London. I work, I work in London. Um, I work at the UCL, University College London Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Mm. Uh, and I, my research is in the specific project uh, called Puffin, which is priming public financial institution, institutions uh, for innovation, uh, green innovation specifically. Right. So I do a lot of work on public banks and public finance. Which ties very well into the uh, article we're going to be talking about. Uh, but one more thing I would like to add there after telling you, we live in uh, near Marseille, you work in London, but you're a Canadian by descent. <laughs> I am Canadian by descent. I'm from Western Canada. I'm an Albertan from oh, yeah. Edmonton. Right. I went to University of Alberta. Um, I'm actually a, uh, well, 
because I'm not living there right now, but when I, you know, my family is from Alberta and mm. uh, part of the Métis Nation so oh, Alberta well, as well. My sister is an executive yeah. director at the Métis Crossing uh, Cultural Interpretive Center wow. in Northern Alberta. Wow. You know, I was quite taken by the article that you wrote, so I appreciate you doing that. I, I understand that also links to a book that you co-authored with the same person that co-authored this article with you, David McDonald. Yeah, we, um, we in, the, in the context of the, the, the COVID crisis, uh, you know, obviously over the last year, um, my work on public banks sort of came to the fore. And David uh, McDonald, who is a professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, does a lot of work on municipal services, in particular water. Um, we, we decided, you know, we have to do some sort of response, mm. given the rise of public banks and their roles and sort of responding to COVID, especially through healthcare, but also through water services and mm. support programs. So we put together this rapid uh, response book, um, Public Banks and COVID-19, uh, Confronting or Combating the Crisis with Public Finance. And it's uh, available free to download oh. uh, at publicbankscovid19.org. I oh. should have written down the, uh, Great. the website on that. You can download the 436 pages uh, for free. Wow, that's great. I'm glad we brought that up. So thank you for sharing that for people that are interested in finding out more. And and speaking uh, of that, you know, your article starts with most Canadians could be forgiven for not knowing what a public bank is. Why is that? Why don't we know more about public banks? Because in part, there's not much of a tradition in Canada anymore of actually existing institutions. I mean, in Western Canada, we, we have, um, well, Alberta, we have the Alberta Treasury Branch, mm. though most people think that it's private or been privatized uh, since Ralph Klein years in the 1980s. Uh, but beyond that, there's not, you know, much other than, you know, these sort of larger kind of obscure institutions like the, the uh, Business Development Bank and the mm. Import-Export Bank. Um, though there are really, you know, you can point to really interesting um, cooperative banks across Canada, Alterna mm. and the, especially Van City uh, in, in, in Western Canada. But in, in Canada and in, in the U.S. as well, uh, there's not the sort of everyday connections to public banks that you would find in, in Europe, uh, particularly places like Germany or France, where I am, where, you know, they're, they're sort of across the country, everywhere, and in many ways connected to people's everyday lives. Right. Now, as you mentioned, the COVID-19 brought the importance of public banks around the world, specifically in other countries who have a strong mandate. Uh, you you kind of uh, mentioned that Canada doesn't necessarily fall into that category of having strong or narrow mandates for their public banks. How did the public banks in other countries, first of all, uh, react and, and were able to react for, to help in the COVID-19 situation? Well, one thing they did, certainly, uh, where countries, you know, not just European, but sort of worldwide, Latin America, East Asia, uh, is, is that they responded very quickly. So, meaning, uh, you know, with the outbreak of the crisis, uh, in China, January, February, but then, you know, by March, April, it sort of spread internationally. What you see in places like Germany, Portugal, uh, France, but also China and so on, are these public banks, through their mandate, through a sort of political process, um, 
rolling out significant financial support for public health authorities so that they can pay their workers because it was a sudden spike in demand, obviously, so that they can buy mass personal uh, protective equipment, um, you know, it starts purchasing the, the, the new ventilators and so on. So really, I mean, public health was a major issue, of course. But then you also see in the more commercial type banks, especially the ones that you know, are sort of society facing where people have uh, accounts and savings, a lot of them, uh, for example, with students, started putting holds on student loans mm. insofar as that students didn't have to repay them or pay interest or there, there's you know, sort of no implications if you didn't repay your loan. Um, and then also in terms of particularly small, medium-sized enterprises, a whole range of programs uh, sort of being out, uh, rolled out by public banks in terms of either pumping liquidity money into the, the SMEs directly and or uh, also providing payment, repayment holidays on existing loans uh, and so forth. So really it was about you know, strip all the complexity away. It was about through sort of a, a political and public mandate, they started plowing money into the economy. And if you think about it metaphorically or even quite literally, they were making time available to households, mm. to businesses, to municipalities, to governments, so that they, they could confront the immediacy of the crisis and sort of, and sort of like allow them to make it through the, the first wave of the, the pandemic and then start sort of you know, regrouping months into it. And just simply by either providing money or not demanding that you know, loans that have been taken out be repaid immediately. Mm. And this is quite a different response than what we see from most private banks, which were very hesitant to uh, release funds. The tendency in private banks is to what they call pro-cyclical lending. So at moments of crisis, they stop lending. Mm. Uh, they want to protect their returns, mm. protect their capital reserves. And so that means you know, don't lend into a crisis. Mm. Whereas public banks are what we call counter-cyclical quite often. Not that the pandemic was in any sense a cycle, uh, but they lend into a crisis, helping to combat that crisis. Um, and, you know, there's many ways you can do that. But often with the public mandate, that means um, putting that money into the hands of communities and public services and, and public authorities that need it. Isn't, isn't what you were just describing in terms of the private banks locking down and protecting their assets in, in, a, in given a worldwide situation like this where everyone is suffering under the same kind of conditions themselves included i would guess isn't it sort of counterintuitive to go in that direction uh well not if you're uh, a shareholder in that bank and not if you uh, are on the board of directors of that bank it's actually in that logic it's your responsibility to protect mm. profits and protect the bottom line of the bank first and foremost above all else. Right, understood. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 
And you can also listen on one of your favorite podcast platforms. You can also listen on our Element FM website. And you can also like us if you listen on our SoundCloud. We also want to welcome listeners on other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth as well. My guest on the show is Thomas Moray, and he is a political economist working on finance for development. And he co-authored an article in the conversation entitled COVID-19 Illustrates Why Canada Needs More and Better Public Banks, which we are talking to him about. Thomas, one of the things you mentioned there about the German example with the KFW bank um, and the experience they had coming out of the Second World War as an example of how it reacts and what it was built to do and built up over time and able to be able to react to a situation that we now find ourselves in like COVID-19. Is it not then an example that other countries could use and could we not have benefited from that example? Oh, yes, I think absolutely. Um, you know, we could have benefited from that example, um, but, you know, in a sense, we've, we, we haven't um, to date. Mm-hmm. So, and, and we sort of started the conversation with uh, our conversation, not only the conversation piece, with the, the sense that, you know, the, the caveat that many Canadians don't know much mm-hmm. about uh, public banks or mm-hmm. the public banks they have. And you know, from from Alberta, I, I speak about the Alberta Treasury Branch, which was created back in the 1930s mm. for farmers and for farming communities. Right. Uh, and you know, it, it has sort of fulfilled that mandate and provides services to communities, and it's built up that capacity. Right. It's one of the largest uh, public commercial banks in North America, uh, you know, with about five billion dollars in assets. But it was in the 1980s, in a sense sort of qualitatively privatized by the Ralph Klein government. Mm. So it's sort of released that public capacity in a sense or or, or not really pursued it. Mm. Um, And then, so, I mean, race forward a number of years now and you have uh, the new Canada Infrastructure Bank that was created two or three years ago in 2017, uh, which is now sort of, uh, you know, in a sense, it's about building up capacity in public banking you know, development bank or an infrastructure bank meant to, you know, as I understand, originally was meant to provide low cost uh, public financing for infrastructure, mm-hmm. but it's evolved into a very sort of problematic institution that is, you know, its mandate is to provide for infrastructure, but it, its, mandate is, its mandate is also very much about pulling in uh, private finance to fund public infrastructure and in doing so, uh, privilege or, if you will, guarantee the returns to the private investors. Hmm. And this has been shown in sort of a number of different forms. Uh, there's the European Debt and Development Organization, but a number of researchers that have pointed very problematic, uh, this public-private um, partnerships where it's, you know, it's really about sort of socializing the losses, but privatizing the profits. And it's a very troublesome uh, business model that's, uh, you know, in, in many ways, is sort of like a Trojan horse, mm. where if you accept one of these loans from the CIB, the Canadian Structure mm. Bank, it's tantamount to privatizing your public water or your energy systems or transportation. Right. And they've come under a lot of fire from that, including from... Uh, Canadian Union of Public Employees, among other scholars in Canada. 
Uh, you, you give an example of something similar to that in your article about the privatization of water in Mapleton, Ontario. Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, that was one example. And, you know, my co-author, Dave McDonald, is really the water expert guy mm-hmm. on this. But that was one case where you see the bank actually pursuing a form of privatization in, in terms of uh, a municipality trying to build up its water capacity, its ability to deliver water to its, uh, its community, um, and, and sort of pushing this uh, public-private partnership model where the actual costs of financing the infrastructure were driven up were made more expensive by the model that the Canadian Infrastructure Bank was proposing. So in the end, uh, the, the mayor, the community council, the municipal council, rejected the, de- mm. the deal, saying we'll find another way. Right. But it's, you know, and there's, we're, we're not quite sure on this, but probably this, was also, this also was rejected at the time of uh, the, the rising pandemic, yes. where things like access to water and accessible water um, for communities is an is a, is a yeah. absolute necessity. Right. And so you really want that. You really want things like water uh, within the public sphere, within some sort of democratic uh, framework by which you can hold it to account. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's such a striking example um, of one area where you do not want foreign private investors, you know, large-scale uh, private uh, sort of contractors yeah. shaping and determining mm-hmm. access to water in a small community. Yeah. And so that was rejected. Right. Um, and what I would say is that, you know, there's certainly a role for, I, I think a vital role uh, for something like the Canada Infrastructure Bank to play in the provisioning of public services, public water services in larger and, and smaller communities. But it has to be in a way that enables and supports uh, those communities to sort of build up public capacity and public purpose so that they're able to deliver essential services like water, like health, like transportation, and so on, uh, with a view, with a, you know, the mission being really accessibility, about equity, uh, and really about sort of universal provisioning of those services in their, their community. It- but you're saying at this time, and from what you're describing, is Canada's public banks don't have that ability because of the narrow scope of their mandates. The yes, I mean, there the, the by and large, there are not uh, there's not sort of a, a established public banking sector in Canada. You know, with the with the exception of a few examples we talked about, and this Canada Infrastructure Bank is very new very, you know, relative wise, very small scale. Mm. Um, so just to give you an example, they're talking about lending, as I understand, $35 billion over the next 10 years or something like that. The German KFW yearly lends out $80 billion. <laughs> So, <Right>. um, <laughs> the, the, and, and, that's, and that's fine. Right. This is the point, is that if you want some kind of capacity and, mm-hmm. and public banking capacity, I think is an absolute vital part of, of uh, sort of uh, the capacity of a, of a governing body, authority, state mm-hmm. to provide for its citizens. You have to begin somewhere, no doubt. Um, 
but it's I think it's a wrong beginning to say we're going to use this public bank to ensure private profits, right. which is precisely the mandate of the Canada Infrastructure Bank. Right. And maybe we can do that through by you know providing infrastructure to communities. They've got it really backwards, right. uh, where their mandate and mission should be about identifying uh, very necessary investments, uh, huge, where there is you know a real need for. You know, upgraded water services, better public transportation, uh, you know, more accessible energy for communities, and so on. Make that the mission, hmm. and you know, provide the, the be the what they talk about in our institution, the uh, uh, the, the lender of first resort hmm. in terms of providing low cost, accessible, equity oriented financing, hmm. rather than as a, a conduit for going out and trying to pull in uh, often foreign investors uh, whose primary interest, where you talked about early in terms of the logic of, of these investors, mm-hmm. is uh, it's really about ensuring returns, yes. high returns, yes. which is not in the interest of, of most municipalities, you know, right. in Ontario sure. or across Canada. It's, right. you know, it's about trying to create proper infrastructure which is precisely what you know, we've talked about the KFW uh, in Germany is what it does. Right. It often will provide competitive rates, cheaper interest rates. It will provide periods of non uh, of grace periods of repayment. So in municipalities, they'll often give, you know, three, five year grace periods uh, where they don't have to pay, uh, start returning their investments. And then they paid over a period of time. And they'll often tie things like green conditionalities to their mm. infrastructure loans. Mm. So they say, if you know, we'll give you this loan, we'll give you a preferential rate. That's fine. And if you like meet or do better in terms of carbon dioxide reductions, greenhouse gas reductions, in terms of climate goals, we're going to actually you know give you a bit of a break. We'll right. you know cut off some of right. the, the amount that you have to pay back. Right. So it becomes a very you know activist institution that's able to shape and direct what is, you know, a very needed transformation mm. in society toward green, equitable uh, you know, economies. Well, I'm in. I like the sound of it. All right. <laughs> how do we go about starting one of these stuff? <laughs> but, but honestly, how do we how do we go about doing that in Canada? Then, what do we what needs to happen in order to get a public bank like that set up in, in Canada? Well, I mean, you, it's set up. Okay. <laughs> it's set up. The Canadian infrastructure bank is set up. What needs to be done is the it needs, and I know there's been a lot of movement around it lately in terms of its governance, mm. but it needs to be made more democratically governed. Mm. So, you know, I hate to go back to this one bank, but it's so interesting. German KFW yeah. has representatives on its board from unions, from communities, from from the actual, uh, you know, governing bodies, the, the legislatures, etc. on it that hold the bank to account, mm. right? That's one way. But there's, you know, if you're also interested, I would certainly say, look at um, to the, our, our neighbors to the south. They have the, this incredible organization called the Public Banking Institute that's uh, developed over the last 10 years. And it is by far the most impressive, most active grassroots public banking movement in the world right now. Mm. And they've got a nationwide network. Mm. And I don't know in how many jurisdictions now, it must be nearly 20 
where they have formal legislation underway around creating public banks, uh, by which municipalities or states or regions will be depositing uh, public receipts, like the, the you know the, the receipts from the city of Toronto, rather than putting in CIBC, they put it into a public bank and then use those to uh, generate loans. Right. So there's a lot of lessons, and they've been very successful. Um, I'll be speaking with, for example, Public Bank LA in the next week or so about their very grassroots movements to create uh, a, a public bank in the public interest in, right. in that city, in that region. But they're, they're really nationwide, New York, right. Connecticut, and so on. Right. I mean, uh, in, in Santa Fe, I believe, has a movement underway. I mean, it's, it's really nationwide. So I guess why I was saying that, Thomas, about how do we do this and how do we get one started is because I thought that, that these banks that, that we were talking about in Canada are kind of locked into to their mandates and they, they can't do more or they're not going to be able to grow and become that kind of an example that we see in Germany. Um, I guess that's what I was talking about. Do you think I that... See, I see. No, I would, say, I would say that bank is worth, you know, um, putting political effort into. Yeah. It's there. It's got some dedicated resources, mm. but its mandate can be changed. Mm. And, it, you know, it is a political, it can be made in you know, a political process. You right. can alter the mandate. Yes. And, you can, you know, through, you know, pressure and organization, uh, you can certainly change. Uh, my, my whole theory of public banks are, is boils down to they are what we make them to be mm. because right. they exist right. within the public sphere. And therefore, even if they've been firewalled as the Canada Infrastructure Bank has been from really democratic accountability directly, it can still be made better. Hmm. And I would say it could be. Um, But at the same time, I would say there's space, certainly in Canada, um, for provinces and municipalities to, uh, and even, you know, different sorts of organizations, indigenous groups, other sort of cooperative groups to begin rethinking the nature of, of cooperative and or public banks as a, as a vehicle for realizing uh, the public interest and green transformations, also equity provisioning of essential services. Okay. Um, and do you believe that Will is there at this point in time in Canada to start looking at this, maybe perhaps brought on by COVID-19? That's hard to say. I don't know. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not so connected on the grassroots in Canada right now mm. in terms of the, the struggles going on, the interest. I think it, the the question has certainly been opened. Mm-hmm. This is certainly the case in the United States, mm. um, and I think you know we'll see what happens with the Canada Infrastructure Bank. I can tell you that uh, QP, the Canadian Union Public Employees, you know, is more and more interested in these questions. Mm. Uh, and but I think there's work to be done. I, yeah. I wouldn't want to um, diminish or what's, what's the right word um, overstate right. the recognition of public banks in Canada or the the sense that there's a, a, a nascent movement around it. Right. I think that has to be built. Okay, um, and I think it's a fight worth right. taking on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's you know, um, let's say. Let's hope this our conversation today puts it on the on the on the radar and, and begin something from here. 
Okay, sounds like a plan. I think it would also be nice to be able to touch base with you again in the future to see if anything has happened and if there has something been happening uh, to see how those changes are, are coming forward. Uh, it's been fascinating speaking with you, Thomas. I appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show. Uh, it's really been my, my pleasure. And I would love to have another conversation with you, David, on this in the future and, and tell you how we've uh, reclaimed the Canada Infrastructure Bank and it's uh, really uh, working in the public interest. All right. Sounds like a plan. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. That's Thomas Moray. He is a political economist working on finance for development, and he is uh, part of the authors of COVID-19 Illustrates Why Canada Needs More and Better Public Banks. It's an article that was co-authored with him and David McDonald in the conversation. You also heard him mention that they have a book that they co-authored. That's a part and parcel of where this came from. Uh, public Banks and COVID-19 Combating the Pandemic pandemic with public financing. You can download that book for free if you go to publicbankscovid19.org. That's our show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to Element FM and Moment of Truth each and every day. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.